And then one day I got seen almost getting eaten by a shark by a guy who was Warren Miller, the great ski filmmaker's cinematographer, Don Brolin, saw me. And when I got out of the water, he gave me his card and that gave me a chance. And I wrote him and I was a ski instructor on the East Coast where I was going to school. So I'm a good skier and they paid me. And that's how I got started in the film business. Bannon? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. Yo, yo, yo. Check, check, check. Welcome back to part two. Part dos, the sequel, the second segundo, that's right, of the our interview with Kip Conweiser. Oh, excuse me. By the way, you're listening to the Restaurant Fiction Podcast, where we review every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. I am your host. My name is Monis Rose. So anyway, yes, yes, this is part two of part one of our interview with producer Kip Conweiser. We were featuring the barbecue in the 1990s, excuse me, the late 90s, I believe 1997 HBO movie Miss Evers Boys, the continuation of that. Now, people say they don't choose favorites. Well, guess what? We're choosing a favorite part, and it is part two. That's right, the continuation. We love, love, love part one. It kind of is the exact same interview, but now we get to uh, split them down the middle and actually choose a favorite. And our favorite is part two. So if you only get to listen to uh, any uh, part, part one or two, just choose this one, our interview with Kip. Why? Well, obviously, he explains how he broke into this business, and it's one of the craziest stories we've ever heard. I think one of the craziest breaking into Hollywood stories to ever exist in all of man and woman and child and alien kind. That's right. Also, we go deep. We go deep on the spiritual side of how uh, becoming aware and mindful can actually help the writer, can help the producer, and really create a symbiotic relationship where all parties win. And I guess, you know, to even break into Hollywood and also to maintain a successful career, you got to be a team player one way or another. doesn't matter if you're a producer, writer, director, etc. All right, I'm talking way, way too much. Let's just get on with the interview. Our interview with Kip Conweiser, Miss Evers Boys. Go. What's your relationship like with the writer? The writer of Miss Evers Boys? Yeah, or in general, in, a, oh, in any project, in any scripted project. With writers, I think the success we've had with writers is by being specific. And I think in any relationship, you find a lot more success with the other person when you can be specific. Uh, it's frustrating because we all want to improve in our relationships with each other. I've never had a writer who wasn't trying. But it, the, where it falls apart is when they feel you're not communicating 
well enough for them to grab a hold of or really appreciate what your idea is, or you're trying too hard, I suppose is maybe another way to put it. But really the answer in relationships is be specific and be clear, be vulnerable as a person giving notes and thoughts. I find it really helpful to marinate in characters, to read something and then walk around with the character before I comment to the writer and live with it and try to hear different voices and walk into a room as a character and kind of, then when I write my notes to feel that I've spent time the way the writer has, in exploring that voice. So you're coming at it as if you got to know that person and you didn't just make comments on them from afar, which is rude to do in general in any relationship, to make sit on the lawn and make comments as people walk by or whatever. It's fun, but you're not accurate. You don't know anything about what you're talking about. And the same thing in making comments to a writer. It's really helpful to invest yourself into what they've created. The key there is working with writers who have this talent to actually create worlds that are worthy of investing yourself into. And that's hard. Good writing is hard. Like business, it's, it, there's lots and lots of money on the, in the world. It's hard to find good deals in which to put it to work. And there's lots and lots of typing, but there's very little writing. So finding it is a matter of your own sense of self and your own sense of culture. And the things you did in the quiet, private times when no one's looking that really moved the ball so that when someone threw a pass to you that was really worthwhile, you're downfield emotionally, mentally, whatever, enough to see it and catch it and run with it. And that's hard for people. That's running on blind faith, that you mean something, that you matter, that your ideas are worth pursuing, that you're worth investing yourself. And I'm a big proponent of meditation and taking some time to invest in yourself. Just sit quietly. I dare you to sit quietly for 15 minutes and not touch anything daily. But if you do, <laughs> a lot of stuff, you know, you start to see yourself. You start to see the thing, the choices you're making. You start to see how your choices are adding up and you can stand back and you can see yourself as a character. Now you're seeing yourself as a character. Your relationship with the writer becomes much more clear because you're not so taking this also personally if they don't agree. You're stepping back and saying, yeah, but they made these choices and sacrifices here, so wouldn't it add up that they do this? And I'm seeing it because I'm doing that for myself. If you're really able to do that, liberate, not just survive and not just thrive, but liberate. Writers and talent, actors, directors, people recognize that, that you're liberated from yourself and you're not strapped into a point of view. It's a, it's a great relationship. How do you find your writers? We found our writers all sorts of ways. My brother and I... We're purpose-driven filmmakers. We have a, a real intention with what we're doing here, and you can see it in our work. There's a couple of films we've made that are, my mom calls Jacob Must Eat, the name of my son. So occasionally you take the fee. It's a studio movie. Take it, put it in the bank, shut up, do the movie. For the most part, though, that's not really been our thing. We're independent filmmakers and, and have existed uh, miraculously in that regard. So we pursue story that we want to tell. And we pursue writers who we think can either tell it or have a story to tell. And oftentimes, similarly, it's a two-way street. Those people can find us because, you know, as, as advice for those maybe who are listening, if you are about something that is definable and consistent and you can point to it and really return to it, be good at one thing, it turns into your passion. It's not that you chase your passion. That's for rich people. You do one thing really well and it turns into your passion. It becomes passion. Um, and that's not forced. It's you're doing it well. You're good at it. You're, you create rhythm with it. We created rhythm with our way of getting our stories told. Um, we could either bring money from unique sources, wealthy people. I'm good at 
structuring financing. I can bring independent equity from all kinds of places and such and have it make sense and return it. We are good at structuring debt and have all kinds of relationships with debt financers. Uh, we've been very involved in tax credits from their inception. I was in Puerto Rico in 2002 when the whole program started and grandfathered myself in with a company there that I ran for 15 years. I think we're on our 23rd movie in Puerto Rico alone uh, at this time. So you find ways to get the financing that makes sense for everyone's priority around the stories that the writers whose vision you want to bring forward is in line with your intention. And when all that lines up, man, you get that done, or I do, because it all lines up. You can say, look, I've got money from a marketing partner. We know where the market is. Here's, I've pre-sold this part so we know what this debt is worth so you can finance against it. We know how long it'll take to get out. So here's what your equity stands to gain and how long it'll take. There's a financial formula. It's around an identity and a set of characters that are well-drawn because we've lived and marinated in it. And we really understand this story stuff. So, you know, that's a compelling argument for filmmaker, uh, film financiers or studios and stuff. As a result, I have sustained a long career for myself and my brother. You got to make sense of this stuff. It can't be all wearing a beret and pointing your fingers in the fucking skies. Does it make sense, you know? And, and if it does, it's fun. It's really fun because the transitions are awesome. <laughs> there really are. It, they go right with your circadian rhythm. It's just like the three acts, the time it takes to get it done. When you're flowing, man, this is it. This, this is great noise. This is vibing, this entertainment business. When you're not, it's frustrating. What is the purpose of your entire archive, your entire collection? I mean, on a certain level, it was to survive, to be perfectly honest. And it'll make maybe deeper about it than is really true. I mean, we're trying to just make it happen here, you know? The fact that we got the opportunity to make it happen, create some momentum, and execute films that overall you can look back on and say, hey, did you guys have an intention or a theme? It's easier to look back and say that there was one because you can look and you can draw a line through it, and it's not hard to see that there's clear intentions that are pretty similar through the work. But I honestly think that that's a result of waking up every day, literally every day, and not being concerned with perfection, but just progression and pushing the agendas forward. And then years later, you look back and you kind of can see that there's an intention through line. Otherwise, honestly, I think it, feel, it would be a little pretentious to say in the beginning, we were 20 years old or 15 when my brother and I really made this commitment to each other that we're going to make movies together. It doesn't start that way. It started with us because we were tap dancers. A straight male tap dancer who danced in a physical kind of a way, like literally had to like create the entire opportunity, the whole show. And ultimately, I just put a piece of wood on the on the ground in a busy street corner and I would just attract an audience by creating rhythm and then by being funny, which you can't tell from this whole interview, but I was once upon a time, I was like a really funny guy. And by just engaging people in humor, people like you and then there's com communication and suddenly you're telling story. This is where Kern and I went like, you know what, we can do this. And then one day I got seen almost getting eaten by a shark by a guy who was Warren Miller, the great ski filmmakers, cinematographer, Don Brolin, saw me. And when I got out of the water, he gave me his card and that gave me a chance. And I wrote him and I was a ski instructor on the East Coast where I was going to school. So I'm a good skier and they paid me. And that's how I got started in the film business. Um, was making little ski vignettes for Warren Miller and calling my brother and saying, this is it. This is going to be great. All we got to do is ski and smoke weed. It's going to be awesome. And like, no, no, no. It's not been that way ever since. But that's how it starts. It starts this way. It starts because you just want to be defining yourself. 
And a lot of people wanted to find themselves, particularly because the phone and they see that and they envy people who define themselves, but they can't get out of their own way. You know, that's a challenge. So we, we got through that. We figured out a way. Somebody saw you almost getting eaten or uh, eaten by a shark. Um, do you mind elaborating on this? I was having a tough time as a college student. I was a cheerleader at, at Syracuse University, and I loved it. It was so much fun. I never went to class. I was in big trouble at home. I was flunking out. My parents had officially thrown me out of the family. I was a real low point. And I, I was smoking too much, too. So I burn in the morning, and I see that there's no waves. Uh, and I planned on going in the water to kind of you know, clear my head out. Um, and I went out anyway because I needed to. And it was literally like glass. And I paddled way out, like 1,500 feet offshore. I mean, way out because it was so glassy. And I, this is Laguna Beach, a beautiful, beautiful place where we grew up. And at that time, too, it was really uninhabited. I literally rode a horse down on the beach with my board and got on. It's great. Our grandfather had horses on the, on the water. So I'm paddling out and it's beautiful and a dorsal fin comes at me and I know the difference. I've been surfing my whole life and a straight dorsal fin's coming at me. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is it. And some dolphins gave me a circle and I paddled back to shore through the circle the dolphins used to distract the shark. Don Brolin, who unbeknownst to me was watching all this, had a great view because up on the bluff, there's no wind or nothing you can see all the way to the bottom in beautiful Laguna. So he saw the whole scenario playing out and saw my doom like about to happen. So when I got up to my car, he was standing there and he said, hey, I saw that whole thing and tell me about yourself. What do you do? That was kind of interesting. And I said, oh, and I was in a bad mood. I'm like, I don't do anything. You know, I'm a loser. I'm like, I smoke weed. I'm terrible. I, I'm flunking out of school. My parents hate me. And he's like, oh my God, you're miserable. You're terrible. Look, here's my card. I don't really want to hear your answer. But if you want to do something and pull your head out of your ass someday, call me. And I, he drove away and I looked down and it says Don Brolin, Warren Miller ski films. And I'm like, dude, I'm a serious skier. I'm like, for real skier. I've been skiing since I was five years old. It's one of the things I, I can do that better than most people. So I'm like, I know who Warren Miller is. And that was the guy. And I didn't really know what a cinematographer was. It said it on the card. So call my brother. Um, I get back to Syracuse and I apply to be a ski instructor with the intention of getting a hold of him. And I got the ski instructor job that allowed me to ski for free because I didn't have any money because, again, I was thrown out of the family. I didn't have any money, so I had to ski for free. And, and I put my juggling clubs in my bag, and People's Express was a cheap airline at the time. So I could juggle in the airport, literally earn enough money in the hat, go in, buy an airline ticket, and fly anywhere in the country with my juggling clubs, get off, juggle wherever, meet somebody or a cutie or whatever, spend the night, get some free dinner, get back on the plane. This is kind of how this went. So I told one. Miller, I can get anywhere you want in the country and I'll film. And they gave me $200 a day as long as I was in Sugarbush, Maine or you know, Steamboat. And they give me little assignments. And I got myself there because I juggled and I earned the money literally the day that I was traveling. And my parents thought I was in class the whole time. And that's how this started. And my passion for it made my brother go, man, my, my, my brother's down for this. I'm, I'm with him. So my parents were really pissed because I'm taking my brother with his super fancy education, who's and current is a, just a genius and one of the most brilliant, kind, wonderful people that there should only be people like Kern. And I'm taking him over the edge here in this stupid film industry that my parents know nothing about. So that's how it started for us. And it really wasn't until, you know, I graduated from USC. My dad cried. There was a little acknowledgement, but not much. And with Working Girl, we won an Academy Award for the music, and they acknowledged that. But it was really Miss Evers' boys. My parents were in the audience at the Emmy Awards. They came with us. And when we won 
the Best Picture Emmy Award at the end of the night, I think that really was a huge moment. And again, something I hope everyone who's involved in entertainment gets to experience for their parents. We all really look to get that sense of satisfaction from our parents. Like, yes, you know, you didn't, (laughs) I didn't waste your time. You didn't waste yours. And you know what? It worked. And that did it. So we had that journey. We're, you know, it's worth it, damn it, if you commit. (laughs) Obviously, in your amazing epoch of this life that you live, can you top that shark story, though? First off, you're really generous with those adjectives. Thank you. You know, as we lead our lives, it doesn't feel always amazing. You know what I mean? It's, It's hard work. Like it wasn't that long ago today that I was feeling quite the opposite of amazing. You know, this is hard. This is, this is a this is a process, and it's important to stay healthy mentally and to run the marathon through. And that's how these things happen. That's how you look back and people go like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, my students and things like, "I can't believe it. You've done everything. You know everybody and stuff." And you think like, "Yeah, actually, you know, I guess so." Um, but that's not how this works. It it works like uh, good old fashioned hustle, uh, and. So to answer your question, though, I appreciate it. that was my deflection of that really kind, kind words, and thank you for that. It was really sweet of you um, to see it that way, and, and maybe that's true. Um, it is amazing. I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. Damn straight. I think my best moment, like <laughs> the greatest moment on the other, the exact opposite side of the timeline, really, is uh, when my son was working for me as an intern. I was at Legendary Pictures, and he was working as an intern on a, t- a series we were doing. And I, he wasn't really interested in this industry necessarily. We just we have a great relationship. We never went through that teenage separation thing or anything. We've always been best buds and talked and really open. It's great. I love Jake. And so we're sitting in the car, and he turns to me and he says, "You know, I think I might actually really be interested in this." And as a father, you think, "Oh my God!" I mean, I want to drop a tear. I'm like, "Oh my God!" I've had an impact. You know, I didn't scare him away. In all the time, those years, he watched me like railing on people to get stuff done, or whatever, and scare the kid away out of this. And so he really followed through on it, and he applied early decision to get into the Newhouse School at Syracuse, and he got in. And I have to tell you, that was probably the greatest moment of my career because. I was not accepted to Newhouse at Syracuse. I applied repeatedly. And they kept telling me, you'll never be a filmmaker. You don't have the smarts. Academically, you're not there. Or they had all kinds of reasons why. You'll never work for you. And you know something? It worked for me. And it worked for me to the extent that it worked so much that my son, with whom I've had nothing but a stellar, great communicating relationship, chooses to follow in my footsteps, at least through his education, we'll see where he really goes. It's up to him. He doesn't have to do this. Made me feel that that actually was the greatest award that I've ever achieved. That I led a life that while I appreciate all the kind things you see from it, and I do appreciate that, that the person who's closest to me and watching me most close actually has the same opinion as you do, that this has been so amazing he wants to do it. Well, shit, man. That's all about as good as it gets. Number one audience member right there, man, right there. Yeah, that's the only one that matters, really. Uh, It's really the only one you're really ultimately affecting. Um, So be present for your child. Your child's watching if you hear that out there. What advice should a smart-driven either writer or producer 
ignore in this business? Well, William Goldman said it great. You know, nobody knows anything. People who think they know don't. And everyone will tell you they do. Assholes and opinions, everyone's got one. So it's really super important that you ask these three questions of yourself. And, and these are not light questions and not to be blown off and surface, really. If you want to, really, if you want to succeed, if you want to do this, as far as I'm concerned, this meaning life, meaning really wake up and grab it. And that is, who am I? Who am I, really? When I'm crying, what do I turn to? When I'm so stoked and really, yeah, you know, what am I going toward? Who am I? What's making me do that? What do I want? What do you really, really want? What do you want so much? You like, you're up in the morning, you're late, you're doing it, you're constantly grinding it, it won't go away. What is it? And what's your intention? What are you going with this? And if you can identify your intention, certainly from a business perspective, it's easy to ide- easier to identify an audience because audiences align by intention. They don't go to the movie because of Matt Damon, sorry, anymore. They go because of the intention of the film and whether or not they align with where that's going. And who are you, what do you want, what's your intention is what can keep any individual competitive against the juggernaut of Disney or Netflix or whatever. Because they need programming that is legitimate in those answers. Authentically, who are you, what do you want, and what's your intention expressed in narrative and characters where we can see the answers for those characters played out in three acts. And if you know that yourself and you come from a place where you know why you're doing this and what you want out of it and what is your intention with the story or with the day or with the relationship that you're in or whatever it is, it's a lot easier to not get thrown off track by other people's statements and pressures. It's this simple. You set a boat, a sailboat, by setting your rudder and a course, and the wind that hits your sail that keeps you on that course, that's your acceptable wind. And any wind that doesn't keep you on that course, you let it fall off your sail. And if you haven't set your course, any wind that hits your sail, you'll accept and you're blowing all over the place. So until you set your own course, you're really premature in taking any wind from anybody. Take me on a food tour of LA. You've been in this town, you've been living, you're, you know, even Southern, Southern California. Let's even broaden it because, you know, born and bred Southern California in general, you know, um, where, where are we going? Where are you taking me? Where are you taking the crew of Restaurant Fiction? What, what's going down? Well, the first most authentic place that nobody takes anybody, but I would take you because I know, is we would go to down to either Long Beach or Newport or one of the, the places where the fishermen come off the dock, and we would buy straight out of the water some calico sea bass that was just caught, and I would fillet it for you, and we'd just have a little hibachi right there on the dock or on the beach, and just as that fish is still in the water and still alive, we'd fillet it up, throw it on the hibachi, we'd season it up if you wanted, in taco or whatever, and right there. That would be the first place. That's our first hors d'oeuvre, just right on the water, straight off the boat. Those, those fishermen love that. I was a, a deckhand on, on those boats when I was a kid. And they love that. They get off the boat and you pay them 20 bucks for their fish. They think they're a big shot. So that's what we would start with. And then we would uh, make our way to, there's a handful of, um, in Southern California, along the beach, just super authentic, kind of divey, small Mexican restaurants. And you got to go to them. They're named things like La Casa and, you know, this kind of boring names. It won't mean anything if I say the names. But we would hit a couple of those for sure for a happy hour right after our little fish 
thingy. So now we're kind of buzzing, you know, so we, we had a little buzz there on the beach and we got a little more during the happy hour. And I think that Southern California, one of the finer things I've seen in growing up here and living here for so many years is there's been a lot of development in culture. It was a pretty narrow kind of a palette for a long time in LA for the most part. But now there's so much wonderful immigration that's gone on. And I emphasize the wonderfulness of all that. And it's brought so much culture and food sampling that there are a handful of pockets of places in LA where you need to just park your car and tour the cultures of people who somehow or another have made their, their way into this city and found a way to survive. And a lot of that's in downtown. So my wife and I love parking the car and just walking that kind of 6th, 7th Street, Wilshire, those kinds of that main area. And they're inside of little pockets and underneath a warehouse or this kind of thing is where you're going to find it. What are you eating in Tuskegee, Alabama at the Barbecue Shack? That is chicken uh, and pulled pork that has been roasting for a good part of the day. That was our crew meal. We set up that picnic scene all day. We were shooting somewhere else earlier in the day, and then we did a company move, and we timed our lunch break so that right after we shot that scene and all the barbecue was cooked, everybody could sit down, and, and it was great. Um, so you're seeing the real deal. That was real barbecue, and, and the beans are real, and the coleslaw is real, and the whole thing, and she's putting it in her mouth and waving it around, and... Miss Evers is the real deal, Millie. That's how it's made. Uh, that movie cost about $4 million. That movie probably made about $4 billion for HBO on subscribers. It was just a beautiful, efficient way of telling a compelling story that will never die all the way down to the barbecue. Kip, this is awesome. Any, any, uh, any last things, any last words you want to say? Chew your food slowly. Um, um, enjoy yourselves, Los Angeles. It's worth it, and you're worth it. The love you want from everybody else starts with the love you feel for yourself. So give yourself a break. Kip, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Well, guys, if you want to watch Miss Every's Boys, Kip's film, go to HBO, HBO Go. I just went on HBO Go myself, and bam, it was streaming almost immediately. It is an amazing uh, piece of work. If you want to look up or watch any other projects that Kip has been a part of, just check him out on IMDb profile. You'll see what I'm talking about. Oh, there's loads and loads of awesome, awesome content. My name is Monis Rose, and I am the host of Restaurant Fiction. If you don't mind, guys, doing us a solid and going on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and giving us a five-star review. If you don't want to, you don't have to, but we highly recommend uh, five stars. And if you want to also listen to more episodes, we got more episodes just go on our page. And if you want to read our reviews, go to restaurantfiction.com. Well, guys, until a couple of weeks from now, keep it fresh, keep it real, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. 